Welcome to the Sounds of the World. We are your hosts, Hillary and Bill. Together, we're going to travel around the world to discover new music, discuss musical topics, and interview fascinating people. Our world is a buffet of music, and it is time to eat. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Sounds of the World podcast. Today, we have a very special guest that I'm super excited to talk with, uh, or that we are super excited to talk with. Um, the, so our next guest is based out of Baltimore. They're a singer, perform, songwriter, performer, entrepreneur, and philanthropist uh, whose mission is to entertain and educate through a message of purpose while providing quality music for mass, the masses. Um, as of July 2020, uh, he's officially opened his nonprofit, Rise with a Purpose Incorporated. Uh, 20, in 2009, he opened up his independent label, New Revolution Entertainment, uh, through which we spoke to uh, a, an amazing hip-hop artist out of uh, Tunisia. Can't wait for that episode to come out. Uh, since its inception, distribution, and licensing deals have been partnered with Ingrooves, United Masters, Red Eye, and APM Music. He's released five albums over his career, becoming a Grammy voting member, and earned a winner of Best Rap Hip-Hop Album for Perspective Juke- Jukebox in the 16th Independent Music Awards. Uh, he continues to use his platform to strengthen partnerships with major brands such as Netflix, ESPN, the NFL Network, and WWE. And in 2019, he brought prominent features to the hit shows such as Russian Doll on Netflix, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which when my wife heard that, she like had to search through, where was this? <laughs> uh, Preacher on AMC and Scam France on UK TV. Um, He's continuing to expand his company and delivered his first TED Talk via Johns Hopkins University in 2021 and partnered with the U.S. Department of State to fund performances and workshops in countries around the world to strengthen cultural ties. Uh, He's brought his influential music to Azerbaijan, Haiti, Belarus, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Angola, and the Ukraine. Um, There's so much more to talk about with him. Uh, one thing I definitely wanted to bring up is he recently signed a two-year deal to work with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra uh, and is officially uh, an, art- an artistic partner, which is, I think, going to be really cool to talk about. So, uh, But his love for hip-hop has never died, and he's collaborated with notable acts such as Chub Rock, Sky Zoo, Camp Lowe, Sadat X, Jazzo, Rusty Jukes, and Granddaddy IU to name just a few over the many years. So please welcome to our show, Anthony Parker, known better as Wordsmith. Woohoo! <laughs> well, thanks a lot for the introduction, Hillary. Like I said, thank you for having me on the show. Appreciate being here and look forward to the upcoming conversation. Hey, this is great. We're so excited to have you. I'm glad that we were able to finally get this worked out and uh, to finally meet you. I mean, it's, a, it's an extreme honor. Um, oh, thank you. So, so yeah, thank you so much for being on. And let's just kind of, we like to always find out about their people's history and their backgrounds and stuff. So maybe you could tell us how you grew up, maybe how you got into hip hop and, um, and kind of where that kind of all went. Uh, I grew up crazy, man, to be honest. I didn't, <laughs> and that's a, not the greatest way to start, but uh, yeah, my pops, you know, he served in the Army 27 years, which proud of him for that, and especially being a black man in America. That's a big thing. It's not small. But because of that, I didn't really have a home. I would say for the first, 
uh, 15 years of my life, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, I was actually born in Germany, have dual citizenship because of that. And again, accidental because my pops, you know, was stationed in Germany at the time. And, you know, that's just where we were at when my parents, you know, got pregnant with me and my brother. So we both, you know, have dual citizenship. My brother's about a year older than me. So uh, I think what it did, you know, growing up with my dad being in the army was gave me a lot of culture growing up. I don't have a racist bone in my body. I got, I would say to appreciate probably the things that you probably don't get to appreciate until you're an adult and you have money to be able to travel. And that's probably one of the pluses of, I would say military life is you get to see the world, especially when you're a kid at a young age, even as an adult, if you've never been anywhere, you join the armed forces, you're going to be everywhere. You right. know? So it's, a, it's almost a trade-off, you know, you're giving your service to America, but you also get to see the world at the same time, which is, so valuable I and mean, you can't even put a monetary value on it uh so i didn't like it growing up to be honest you know what i mean when you were a kid just think about it you know you make good friends and then you know your parents are saying all right we're leaving here and we're moving okay we just got mm-hmm. here a year ago we got to move again so right but when i got older and uh you know, you meet so many different people and hear so many different stories. And some people say, hey, I've never been out of the state or I've never been out the country or I've never flew before. And, you know, I took those things for granted and started to realize, man, you know, I really got to do some special things as a kid and started to appreciate it more. But I didn't have a home. You know, I, I got into Baltimore City at uh, age 18, between 18 and 19, and it was off of a football scholarship that I got the Morgan State University out here and, you know, had my kids out here and I've been here ever since, you know, in the community, impacting my community, creating music, trying to build programs. So this is, I would say what I would call home for me, the best way you can say home being where I was born at, but I've been here the longest. I'm 41 now. Wow. That's amazing. I just, I can't even imagine. I know that you said moving so many times through so many years like it's so hard to put those roots down and feel like you have that sense of identity or that sense of home i know especially i I only moved a few times when i was a kid but even like people go what's your hometown and i'm like i don't know what answer do you want to hear (laughs) oh yeah i remember having friends who would come into class and they're like well my my mother or my father is in the military and then Literally, they'd be gone the next year, and it was just like, <laughs> what happened? They're like, yeah, we had to leave again, and you know, yeah. it was just, where are you now? Oh, we're in Japan, or <laughs> you know, and I was like, yeah, it'd be crazy, yeah. And I was always like, that's so cool because you get to see new parts of the world and experience new food and cultures and music and things, and and they're always like, yeah, <laughs> like it's just it's exhausting to keep moving and mm-hmm. be new places and stuff. And, so it's, it's yeah, it's it's amazing to think, you know. Well, and I love what you said. Like, there's that deep appreciation of travel, like you said, and and you're you're serving the world. You know, you're serving America. You're putting all this time in, but you're also at least coming out the one like silver lining. To I mean, and we, you know, it's like I'm so grateful for our military personnel because they do make all those sacrifices, and I'm just it's a little happy to know like there's a silver lining of like you do get those like um, broad cultural experiences and you get to travel. All those things. So I'm happy there's there's just a little sliver in there. That's good. <laughs> yeah, you just have to learn to appreciate it. You know, again, as a kid, 
you don't have a ton of perspective. You're not thinking outside of the box. And if someone tried to tell you to do that, you just, what, huh? What's that mean to me? You know, so Why? <laughs> yeah, you're all about friends, having a good time, go to school. You know, you're not about the serious things in life. And so yeah. you're not going to appreciate it. I don't think, you know, at that young age. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've moved quite a bit for our kids just based on my education, but it's just, you know, I've always, I lately was talking about thinking about that. I'm like, Hmm, I wonder what their memories are going to be like having to move so much and, <laughs> you know, but that's crazy. So, yeah. So you went in, so you were a military brat, quote to speak, you know? Um, but, uh, how did you get into doing music? Well, I had a, you know, moving around, this is crazy too. You know, when I lived in Germany the second time, I was around eight years old. And what people don't know about American TV during that time, I was in Germany when the Berlin Wall came down and everything. So it was huge news. I was living in a small town called Schwabach, Germany at the time. And we would literally get everything a year after it would air. So I remember when the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air came out in America, I remember my brother and I wanted to see it so bad, but we couldn't. And again, sometimes we would have our family literally record shows for us and mail the VHS tapes. I know the kids probably like, what is a VHS tape? But VHS <laughs> tapes to us. And it would take forever for them to get there on top of that. All right. This was back in the day. So... Literally, too, I remember uh, I remember the Giants were in the Super Bowl. They were playing the Bills, uh, if I could take you back in. I remember when the game aired. Because of the time difference, I remember my mother had to get us up at, I think, 2 a.m. in the morning to watch the Super Bowl because it was 7-something in America. So we would have to do crazy stuff like that or for shows or something. We might read about a show but have no access to it. Family members would, like, literally mail us a whole season on several VHS tapes of a show. And we literally would say, keep the commercials in there because we wouldn't see American commercials at all. And think as a kid, you you think you're living on Mars. You're like, nothing is normal. We're not seeing anything American, nothing. You know, we read about it here and there. Or if you go on an American base and go into American stores, it would feel like America a little bit, but everything seems so far away. Yeah. I remember the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air stuck in my head because I, I, I love, number one, um, DJ Jazzy Jeff in Fresh Prince. So oh, I yeah. was just, my mind was blowing. He's got a TV show. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, you know what I mean? So, but we couldn't see it. So I remember a year later when we got the first season of Fresh Prince in America, they were going to the second season. Right. So and every <laughs> show would be like that. You just be behind so when we finally came to america i mean you want to talk about behind the times I was, man i was dressed a mess on top of that all that of fashion style was just terrible behind on shows having conversations about old things with people they'd be like that show ain't even on no more or that you know what i mean or that was a couple years ago like we had just got it where i came from that we had just got the first season they'd be like that's on season six out here what you know wow. so yeah it was it was such a different time and even i remember music and i'm so off topic i'm sorry no we're like, here for it even uh on music i remember same thing we would get stuff slow mm -hmm. and uh the funny story with music my parents were always real critical parental advisory stickers so i remember we would go in the stores and they would be real nah you're not getting that it's got a parental advisory sticker on it 
So I started getting clever and they always would have these sales stickers for $8.99, $5.99 and they'd be orange, you know, for resin green. And I would take them off of other things and put it over the parental advisory <laughs> sticker and be like, this is what I want. And my parents would never check. And I got so many NWA tapes, Ice-T tapes, Africa Bambada tapes, Public Enemy tapes, right through the cracks by using this method. And the reason I tell that part is that's kind of how my love of hip hop started in a lot of ways, because I didn't have access to seeing music videos. I was in Germany when hip hop started really bubbling, uh, right. to be honest. And so it was literally, I would see a tape look at the cover, read the songs on the back and be, man, this sounds interesting. This is how far away from American society I was in culture. And I've so many tapes. I have a tape collection to this day that goes all the way back to Germany that are tied to those memories of like, I didn't even hear this tape until I bought it. And then I would go, man, this artist is dope. I like this. And so I remember when I came back to America and I got to see your TV raps in a box. My mm. eyes was huge. I said, oh my gosh, there's a video to this song I love. There's a music <laughs> video. There's a show that you can watch videos. This is possible. Yes. And so it was implanted in my mind when the visuals got added and the culture really got added. I seen how dudes was dressing, how they was wearing their hair, the kicks they was wearing. That's when I really said, oh, this is what hip hop is. It's not just the music, it's the culture. It's how you mm -hmm. talk as well. And just had a great love, became a collective hip hop. And uh, when I moved to Germany, this was after we came back from, uh, I'm sorry, Germany, we moved to Georgia. This is where we came back from Germany finally, my second time. I really, a group of kids I got cool with, they really just would rap all the time. That's all they did, wouldn't do no work, just rap all the time. And here I am, I got this tape collection. I'm always bringing it to school, playing tapes when we'd be hanging out, but I never would spit, never rap, nothing. And they started to notice over time. They were like, why you don't never spit? You always got all these hip hop tapes. You're always talking about all this hip hop stuff and you're a brainiac with it. I mean, I literally could tell, nah, that was off this album. This is the title of the album. It was track four. I was a nerd with it. And so they pretty much said, listen, we doing a concert. You got to write something, but don't even show with us no more. And I took it to heart. Wow. Probably more because I moved around so much. And right. I just didn't want to lose no more friends. You know, I, we were in Georgia for three years. And at that point in time, it was the longest I had ever been in one place. And so I took it to heart. But it was natural. When I wrote that first rhyme, man, I almost said to myself, yo, what were you doing? Why did you not? Yeah. You know, I didn't put two and two together. I loved it, but never tried. To, to do it. And I'd be in there spitting other people's rhymes and killing stuff on cue. And that's what they were trying to say to me. You could spit Redman's verse, destroying it the same way he's spitting it. You know what I'm saying? You spitting, you know what I mean? EPMD verses that are, that are hard, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But you're killing it. And so when I finally wrote this song and it was unfortunately a Christmas song was my first <laughs> verse I had to write on top of that, which was horrible. And then thrown right into the fire and they're like, oh yeah, on top of the verse, we're doing a Christmas concert for the school. Oh my goodness. Like, oh crap. So I got to write my first rhyme. Then you want me to perform it in front of half the school? <laughs> Man, you talking about throwing in the fire, but to this day, I have a newspaper clipping of that, of that show that we did. And a newspaper clipping of after that, if y'all remember the D.A.R.E. programs, we did this D.A.R.E. concert with the D.A.R.E. Uh, 
program when they came to the school and we was able to work it where we was able to do this dare rap uh, during their presentation when they had a guy come to the school and that was my early performing. That was my early, I would say rapping. And yeah. I had it there, but sports was my thing. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. sports was my thing. You know what I mean? I played football. Uh, I was able to get a scholarship that brought me to Baltimore, but tore my knee up in college. And that's when I really leaned back on music. And it was, I would say, theater arts that really, I would say, um, brought the music side out of me more because I did a lot of musicals when I was in college. So I had to learn sheet music. I had to really learn different vocal tones. I had to learn to work with orchestral, orchestral elements, uh, even work with jazz elements at time. And so it just, I had this ability and this talent through the years, you know what I mean? But I mm -hmm. never really developed it until I got to college and had actual teachers to say, hey, this is this, this is that, <laughs> you know, and so forth. This is what, you know, a whole note looks like. You know, this is a half note. This is a quarter note. This is a half note rest, you know. Okay, that's what that stuff means and all this jumble on this <laughs> sheet music show. Okay. All right, that's a time signature. Okay, I didn't know what the hell that was. Four bars, that's all I knew. You know what I mean? 16 bar verse, eight bar hook. And so I got the traditional teaching that probably uh, musicians that learn how to play an instrument early on in life, you know, uh, do. I more learned it when I was, shoot, 18, 19, 20, 21. And because of that too, I didn't really get into music until I was 29, 30, you know, mm. and I'm 41 now. So about 11 years in the industry and I've been able to be a successful independent, you know, just off of experience, some, a lot of self-taught, but then also some great teaching as well. Yeah. Man, that's an incredible story. Like, I could just listen to you talk all day. This is so much fun. <laughs> um, I love the, like, fusion you're talking about. Like, you've got this fusion of this love of hip-hop, this, you know, like, idolization of the hip-hop culture. And, like, um, it's so amazing what, like, being abroad for the... I, I studied in England for a year doing my master's, and I just remember becoming so obsessed with America. Like, going like reading the american news and like what's on the radio these days like i'm, I'm getting bbc like what's back home and like mm -hmm. i mean lucky for me i was it was in the day of age i mean this was 2017 so i was literally streaming netflix shows before <laughs> friends could because they would put the episodes in england before they would release it in america but i love that you have this like fusion of like of, of hip-hop of theater arts of the discipline of football like all coming together um, and I, I really think it's powerful that you learned like orally and from just listening, because I think so many people like look at music and think like, oh, I couldn't do that. Cause I mean, sheet music's freaking intimidating. If you're like, I mean, my boyfriend sure. laughs at me. So he's like, what the hell are these squiggles about? Like, you're supposed to read this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's so powerful that you're able to listen to that and develop that skill and really run with that and, and do it, which is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and it, I find it really fascinating that even though you were listening to everything from NWA to African Bambata to, uh, you know, I would assume like Wu-Tang and all those guys that Definitely. it's like still you take your music and totally put it in a whole new direction. Like right. your music is very uplifting and it's about, well, I mean, maybe you should describe it rather than me describe what your music is. but. <laughs> 
Well, no, nah, you was definitely on the right track. Well, you know, with it, I even though I have this base, and as you see, I, I named a lot of artists that I would say were somewhat political activists in their time, but mm-hmm. on wax, you know, and within the hip hop genre. So you hear that if you listen to my music, that is my base. You know, I'm political at times, but very opinionated in my music, but very grounded in delivering blue collar relatable music. And all those guys I mentioned, you know, even groups like A Tribe Called Quest, I love them as well. Oh, yeah. Again, just relatable hip hop music that you didn't feel that these guys were so big celebrities that you could never run into them any regular day. You, you literally said, I could run into these cats any day and chill on the couch, have a conversation with them, you know, whatever. So oh yeah, I, I've always wanted to keep that as a musician, no matter what my level of success was, I always wanted to feel to my listeners that, you know, I could chill with word any day or I can relate to what he talking about in this song or this story. And that's how you stay grounded as an artist, man. Write about what you know. Don't write about, you know, the fantasy or what other people are doing or life that you don't know. You want to do that, become a director and write a film, you know, right. You know, you need to write about what you know. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Look, if you live in the hood, you live in the trap, you move in drugs, you move in weight, and that's what you're rapping about, I ain't got no problem with you because you're living that life and you talking to your base who are living that life as well. But you better not be out there talking about living that life and you ain't never been in jail, you ain't never moved no weight, you ain't never been in the trap. Be quiet. And that happens a lot in hip hop now, you know. When trap music even started, it was talking about a way of life and the projects. But now trap music is a full-blown genre of music where they call a song, this is a trap beat, you know, or this is right. a trap song right here. And I even I know at big clubs, they play just trap hard instrumentals. And so it has definitely morphed, but it went through this period where everybody was, you know, I'm doing a trap record. And sometimes I would say it myself, and I would see some of the people doing trap records and I'd be like, what do you know about the trap, man? Just yeah. really. Yeah. Okay, just really. Okay, but... You know, again, it's it's what you put out there, you know, and that's what you got to be conscious of. Even when you're talking to your base, I think still you got to have in your repertoire those opportunities where you can speak to other parts and other people, other races, and really flip the script at times and bring more people into your conversation. And that's what I try to do. I try to, you know, one, I'm able to write in so many different genres from my experience over time, and I'm grateful for that. You know, recently did a vocal jazz album, of course, through the classical, through hip hop, written a lot of pop and R&B records as well. So I'm able to move in and out of different genres and appeal to a lot of different, I would say, races and cultures. It's not about me being the biggest artist. It's about how many people can I, you know, basically impact, get behind a different culture and say, hey, if I come into your culture, let me give you the best of America and I want to get the best of your culture as well. That's what I'm about in that exchange. You know, when I'm trying to reach out and get new fans, I want lifelong fans that can reach out to me at any time, tell me anything that's on their mind, be as open and transparent as possible. And also, like I said, just be relatable. I try to be a relatable artist. Yeah. Go ahead, Hillary. I was going to say, like, I was listening. I can't remember I listened about a month ago, but I put your album on and I remember just like listening to it all and being like, holy shit, like I cannot have a conversation with this guy. Because like you said, it's so relatable and like you put, you put your, I don't know, you're exposing all these different parts of us that the rest of us can go, oh shit, yeah, I felt that too. And like, yeah, I've definitely experienced that or like, 
oh no, that one's not quite me. But yeah, I think I can like, I don't know, your music, like you said, is so relatable. And I think you accomplished that goal so freaking well. Like, I just had a blast listening to your, all of your music because like, there wasn't a single song where I felt like alienated or like I wasn't invited to listen in on the story. And so I really think like, you you definitely accomplish that in your music and it's so much fun to listen to them. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate you. And I think definitely coming as, you know, uh, two Caucasians who are, you know, <laughs> listening to hip hop and rap music, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it can be a little alienating if, uh, for people who don't, who haven't lived those kinds of experiences, you know? Sure, sure. Uh, uh, but I mean, even like listening to like what like living life check to check or um was it fill the space a couple other ones it's just like these are things that a lot of people live through that aren't necessarily you know only you know people of who are black or hispanic or whatever are living through like everyone who is below this economic <laughs> level you're living through it you know yes, yes. yeah it's like you don't have to be living in the hood or or you know part of the bronx or whatever like this is you know this is life for millions of americans millions of people around the world so it's uh you know it's i love that it's very applicable um and a, a, a wide range of things because you know like i said it can really feel like sometimes it's not so. Yeah, yeah, I definitely get that, you know. And again, I'm I'm speaking on behalf of the black community, you know. And I again, I support. You want to see black success, you know. I definitely want to see that. So a lot of the young cats in the game right now that are making a lot of money, you know. My I guess my biggest wish is it's not about me liking all of their music, you know. It's just I think you want to get to a point where it clicks with them, where you say, realize the power you have. So what are you going to do with this power? You just going to make money, flash it be in the club all the time. I'm not saying don't be in the club, have your fun, but are you going to have those moments of thoughtfulness where you're like, hey, I've reached a certain level of success. I have power. I have a voice. What can I do with my community? I'm talking about how rough my community is, how drug infested my community is, but how many artists are really turning around and uplifting their community once they are becoming successful? Yeah. A lot of them I see just keep talking about their community and their struggles over and over and over. And I say, well, you're a millionaire now. So whether you're taking care of just your immediate family or, or, or so forth, you have a voice. And what I mean, uplifting your community doesn't have to always be money. You can be in your community holding nonprofit events. You can be in your community just bringing the community together to put other artists on and musicians on, other people with talents in the art field. Uh, whatever, but supporting sports organizations in your community, whatever it might be, you can really, it's up to you once you have power in this society to do what you want. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, yeah. you can say, I can go the evil side, I can go the good side, you know what I mean? And just more thoughtfulness. And I feel, no, especially in the hip hop community, we lack that, especially from a lot of the young cats who get in this game and get celebrity status so early, 17, 18 years old, where they haven't had enough life experience to even be thoughtful enough for another human being, you right. know? So that's the stuff that when I have classes, workshops, whether it's here in America, other parts of the world, I'm trying to stress that to kids and tell them that, 
be thoughtful when you create your music, have a purpose. You know what I mean? When you're writing a song, you don't understand how important it is. Because once you write something and put it out there, and I don't care if five people listen to it, 10 people listen to it, those 10 people might hang on to your every word. And right. that every word that you put out there could decide what somebody does. And what I mean by that is you don't want to write a song that puts someone, I would say, in such a depressed state that they go, you know, I was thinking about suicide, but after hearing this song, I'm going to commit suicide. Right. right. You yes. know, and, 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 I, and yeah, but I say this in a term of saying, that's an artist not realizing their power. You know, are you saying in a record, you know what I mean? I'm going to keep sipping lean, sipping lean, sipping lean. I'm going to take meth. I'm going to take meth, sip lean. Kids keep hearing that and put two and two together and they're going to go try that eventually. And then yeah. they're going to die. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Not knowing I see this rap in the video. He's all flossed out. He's looking good. He's bouncing in the joint, not knowing the side effects. Right. Yeah. Of what you're seeing. And that one night that you go, yo, I'm going to be like so-and-so that I keep seeing in the video. That's your last day breathing. You know what I mean? So uh, you have to be conscious of what you're putting out there. Yeah, it's cool to show that stuff, but we don't need it in 50 songs. It's by 50 songs you brainwashing kids to do that stuff. Right. And that's right. the honest truth. Yeah. That's Sorry. such a powerful message, too, especially for kids, because I think... A lot of times, like, at least for me, like, music was just this thing, and I, I was always searching for purpose, but I don't think anyone had ever challenged me to, like, have purpose with music, like, write something for a reason. It was like, I just kind of, you know, you're, you're never really grabbing onto that as a kid, so I Correct. think it's so important to have, like, you right there explicitly delivering that message, like, hey, just in the back of your brain, be thinking about this, like, yeah. success will likely come to you, and when it does, like know what you're doing with it like that's such a cool i'm so like just in awe that's such an amazing message and thank you for sharing that with with everyone oh, youth. That's just incredible yes definitely and so this has then morphed into maybe you could talk about your collaboration with the the with baltimore symphony yeah i actually have a really really big piece that i recently wrote it's going to be debuting on juneteenth and i'm, I'm so proud of oh it. awesome yeah it's a commission piece that the baltimore symphony orchestra uh brought together between myself and a black composer out here in baltimore city called james lee the third and so we wrote and composed a piece called destined word and it, it takes you through i would say three stages of juneteenth it begins in the past of the explanation of our liberation and really talks about, I would just say that moment when Gordon Granger comes to the black slaves in Texas and tells them they're free. And want that to just really stand out and think about that. You're talking about over 400 years of slavery and you have a white man come to you and say, hey, you're free. You can actually go. Yeah. Imagine how many slaves probably had this fear of this is a trick. Or the moment I walk away, you're going to shoot me in the back. We have never been free. We don't know what that looks like. And I tried to really mentally put myself there and go, man, how would I react if I heard that? And I said, I wouldn't believe it the first time. I would need them to say it a couple times and see weapons down and, and, and just see a peaceful trail out, you know, whatever that looked like. Right, right. And so I, want, I took the first half to really just, this is why Juneteenth is important because this was actually the moment that us today in any fashion you want to look at as an african-american that we gained our voice in america when we became free yes we went through jim crow yes we went through a lot of different areas the civil rights era trying to gain you know a position to vote 
but it was the first time we actually could have a voice of freedom, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I covered that. And in the middle, it's kind of coming to present time, not to our time, but the present time of the civil rights era and talking about somewhat of the cliche phrase that we heard, um, I'm sure at some point in time, the revolution not being televised. Well, it wasn't televised. The media didn't want to televise that at all. They had no reason to. Right. But I also talked about how we didn't have social media during this time. And this is how you tie this together is when we gained this right to vote during the civil rights era and this, you know, pack was made, it was in stone. It wasn't said, it wasn't said by somebody on Facebook or Instagram. The news wasn't delivered on Twitter. It was, this is what it is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No different than when Gordon Granger came to the slaves and said, you're free. You're hearing it from the source. And so there's a section in there where I just talk about, you know, the truth comes from the leader, not the keeper of a social network, you know? And so it's, it's just saying that we got to get back to hearing the truth from the leaders, the people we trust that are legitimate, not somebody that just wakes up one day and goes, hey, an alien is the one who is the president now and he's just wearing a, you know, a flesh body, something stupid. You know what I mean? And yeah. unfortunately, someone reads that and goes, I-, I believe that. And it turns into a viral situation. It was none of that back in the day. Your word meant everything when you spoke it, you know, and so. I tried to touch on that. And then the third phase is the future. And it's strictly focused on the youth. You have all this knowledge of history that you can look at from the internet. You can go to the library, okay? You can ask people who have lived during these times. Just have conversations with people that are older than you. Yeah. You have all these resources. So now it's up to you to take that baton. All that you know about Juneteenth, all that you know about where we were and the rights we gained, because 20 years from now, there's going to be the next generation and we don't want them living through this. To mm-hmm. see all the same issues that we're doing. So it's it ends in a celebratory state, but it also ends in a state of encouragement to the youth that, look, we're giving you the tools. So we need to see you take these tools and we need to see real change. So when you have your kids, they're not in the streets having to still protest and hold assemblies and still talking about police injustice and some of the same stuff that... When I was walking in a lot of these assemblies out here in the city and protests, I'm seeing people in wheelchairs, 70, people out here talking on the mic that's 75, 80 years old that have lived through all this already and probably said, oh, we're going to be so advanced by the time we get to 2020. Then we saw George Floyd. Floyd died and realized, I realized it. I'm sure some of you have, but most of America did not realize that, oh, we still have a race issue with it, and oh, blacks are getting killed for no reason. It's always been real. It's always been real. But like I said, they don't televise these things. Their oppression is there. And this is a whole nother conversation, but with this piece, myself and the composer James, we know classical music is still a very white dominated form of music, though a beautiful form of music. It's not inviting, unfortunately. And it's still, I would say, an old form of music that I would say a lot of it because its roots are from European roots. We all know in Europe, it's it's not diverse in that magnitude. So there wasn't a black person, it wasn't Latino, it wasn't an Asian who was writing in Europe and decided to write Beethoven one day. That's right. not how it went down. Right, right. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Beethoven was a white European cat. And just about all the composers during that time, that's what they were. And so that's one piece of that culture that we have adopted here. And so we've also adopted that strict policy of, uh, 
I don't know if someone of color should be doing this piece. Or I don't know if someone of color should be conducting this piece. You know, it just doesn't look right because this isn't someone from the white community sitting up here with an orchestral instrument in their hand. Ah, that doesn't look right. We live in a diverse country. Nothing looks right in our country. Right. <laughs> I mean, just being real, we have the most probably immigrants of any country. Okay. So to me, which is a great thing. Yeah. And so with that said, we have this huge diversity in our country that literally just through my travels, I've been to countries where there's no other race there. Mm-hmm. When I went to Azerbaijan, it was Azerbaijanis. I think I was the first black person to walk in their soul in a decade. No lie. <laughs> So for them to see black skin in person, it would blow people's mind because the only other black people they would see was on TV and film. That's how far away they were from it or listening to it, you know? And so to see someone live there, I mean, there were people that just wanted to touch my skin to see what it felt like. Man, how does black skin feel? You know, so there are places in in this world that is still so cut off from the things we take for granted. You know what I mean? And I've been able to experience that. And my eyes are wide open every day because of my perspective on the world. You know, I live in a city where most people live below the poverty line out here in Baltimore City. It's a tough city. Mm -hmm. Though the poverty is bad, I've seen poverty at levels that should not exist in this world or that we should allow to exist with all the money that flows around in this world and having the United Nations. And I'm telling you, we have places in this world that you wouldn't wish anybody, your worst enemy to have to live in or try to survive in, yet that exists here. Mm -hmm. So there's so much to do. It's so much to talk about, to be honest, you know, and uh, I just try to do my part and chip away at it, you know, every day. Holy shit, that's powerful. (laughs) I mean, it's like, I'm blown away, like, everything everything that you stand for is just so empowering and so beautiful and just like truly truly awe-inspiring so it's it's truly inspiring to listen to you speak and these issues you're going after are just amazing i mean it's so incredible that you're talking about this i love your idea for this piece like that's i was getting chills you're talking i'm just like oh my god i want to hear this so bad because like you said like I mean, it's so interesting, that idea of like where we are now with social media versus where we were um, 180 years ago, or I can't count, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Like several, you know, decades ago and and where that's come from. So I love that message to today's youth. Like, here you go. (laughs) You've got the tools. We have the power to change this, but it's going to take us not you know, focusing on the wrong things or focusing on the right things. So just, holy shit. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Hillary, that's what I'm talking about. Thank you. (laughs) Well, and it's like, I just saw a thing where like, there's still survivors from the Tulsa massacre, you know, and they are, you know, up there talking to Congress about what happened and things. And yet literally what, you know, two states away, another unarmed black person gets shot. And it's like, they must be thinking, what the hell is, what progress have we really made? You know, I don't even know how to like be in that kind of mindset. Like, but I mean, like you say, you're chipping away at it and you're, you know, exposing this and you're trying to help and you're promoting 
you know, a good future, you know, for everyone. And it's those kinds of things, I think, that are just incredibly inspirational. It's like, okay, that must be at least a little bit of a nugget for people who have survived things like that or who survived the civil rights movement and who survived the boycotts, the sit-ins. And they think, okay, yes, okay. See, this is one person who gets it. And they're going to help more people who are going to get it. And that's going to spread, you know, so just, you know, it's amazing. And so it's such a beautiful statement. So you're speaking on it, man. That helps the cause. I'm just being honest. <laughs> you know, when I'm walking into protests, the thing that I think surprised a lot of the black community was there were so many people from the white community walking into protests and you would see it on TV. And to even, you know, after George Floyd's passing, see countries like, you know, internationally come together and be walking. I'm talking about countries that don't have a high black population at all, except for when tourists come. But right. understood the magnitude of what's going on here and the bias that, you know, black people deal with living in America. If foreigners can understand it from abroad, how is it? It's not understood in the own country you live in. Think about that. I mean, right. they're walking in protests. <laughs> I think it was what? Almost like 10 countries were walking in protests with us out here, understanding why we're walking, of the injustice that they saw thousands of miles away, not even in America. and But then here, we're in denial about things. Right. And no, oh, no, it wasn't this and that. And this, no, it is what you saw. Okay. What you saw, that's what happened. You know, but. I bring it up because, man, there were so many people from the white community that I, when I would be walking or we would stop for a moment and people would talk, I would just go up to them and say, I love you. And just tell them that I appreciate you being bold and being out here because we need the white community to speak up for us. You know what I mean? We, we've been out here marching, talking, holding rallies, protesting, but you need the white community to be there too, to say, mm -hmm. we support, we want the black community, Latino community, indigenous community. We want us all to be equal. We're not about this being a superior race stuff. And that's what it shows us is that you're not here to be a dominant race. You're about, you're about being a diverse race that will raise up whoever is doing great and successful. That happens to be a Latino person that is good for president or is the next great actor and the next great musician, but let's raise them up. It right. happens to be someone that's Asian raise them up. It happens to be someone that's Arabic, raise them up. Who cares? Once you're an American citizen, you're American. I don't care what your nationality was. Once you earn that right and you're successful in this country, whatever your passion is, it's our duty to raise you up after that. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. we don't always do that. You know what I mean? And we gotta, <laughs> we can't stick to the old ways of being, hey, well, you know, white is the dominant race. I mean, Listen, we're so far past and removed from that. And right. Yeah. Even the discussion we're having now, y'all don't think that way. You know what I mean? Right. And most white <laughs> people do not think that way. You know what I'm saying? Don't. And so that's why they out there walking because they go, I don't think that way. I don't believe in that. I didn't grow up that way. I didn't learn that to be um, racist towards this race or that. So that was so beautiful just to see. And it's always beautiful too. And you can have openness like this, you know, with Will um, and you, Hillary, to have discussions like this, that they hard, they're hard to have sometimes. Mm -hmm. They're uncomfortable sometimes, but when you can have an open forum to talk about it, people need to hear it. Everybody's not going to be willing to have a voice and say, yeah, I want to have that discussion. But if they turn on this podcast and hear us having this discussion, that's all you need sometimes to be a part of it. 
you know so thank y'all too for the open forum you know to talk about the real subjects and real things going on in life Oh, I'm getting like choked up in this conversation. I know, right? <laughs> hey, it's, it's real. It's real. It always feels like it's not enough and like there's more that we could do or, I mean, I don't know, at least for me, it always feels like there's yeah. more I could do and more I could, uh, you know, whether it's like if I could give more to BLM, I would, or if I could, uh, you know, do more participation, more uh, participate in protests or whatever, or you know, help push for better legislation and vote certain ways. And, sure. you know, it always feels like it's still just like, I feel like it's still just not enough. And like, there's still more that I, something else I could still do, you know. <laughs> Biggest thing I encourage both of you is gain the knowledge, you know, the black community. We don't want any hand me outs, you know, or anything like that. You know, we just want to, we just want that even playing field. You know, right. and other than that, we just want the white community to acknowledge, you know, what a lot of the black uh, community has done through the years to contribute to America and what we are today. Because there's been so many that swept under the rug and where you brought up Tulsa, which, you know, with Black Wall Street, that whole yeah. thing was swept under the rug. No one was ever brought to justice. So many black lives were killed just for being successful. Right. Just for being successful. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, you and know. Wilmington and just... Yeah. All sorts of places. It's crazy. Swept under the rug, not talked about. I'm sorry. Though it's hard to hear, the kids got to learn about that stuff in social studies, in English. You got to tell it to them early. Like, listen, this is not a part of history that any of us should be happy about, but you need to know about it. Kids shouldn't be learning about it when you're 18, 19, or when you go to college, or when you're forcing yourself. Uh, I, I just need to learn. You know, we want to mm -hmm. teach them when they're young. But what I encourage you to, to do is just keep learning, you know, keep gaining that knowledge. That's what we want the most is thus when we have conversations, we can have those good ethical conversations where they're knowledge base as well. And, you know, some black history and you've took that time to really do more reading on who were true black leaders back in the day and what black leaders have maybe given me things that I didn't realize in the, in the white community that I had because of a black man or woman. Mm -hmm. And there's so many of those tales weaved into our history that are just swept wow. and they make you dig for them like a buried treasure, to be honest. So yeah. <laughs> What I encourage you to do is gain as much knowledge as you can. And when you have moments to spread it to others in your community without being overbearing with it, of course, because everybody's not always <laughs> going to be accepted, you know, <laughs> but at least you have that knowledge at a moment's notice where maybe you hear something that's not factual, right? Where you can go, well, that's not exactly true. You know, actually a black man created this in 1967. Right. So it's not what you thought, you know what I mean? And just that being able to account, I want to say contradict, but somewhat debate what is the truth. You can make someone go home and go, yo, I always thought it was this. I got to start looking this up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And learning more. So knowledge is what I encourage you to with is learn more about black history. So you can have more of those conversations with the black community, um, which will help uplift, you know? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I think like, it's so, the more I learn about like all those little moments in history that have been swept under the rug, the like, angrier i get because i'm like i hear you i hear you same anger it's it's insane like i think one of the most life-changing books i ever read it's the immortal life of henrietta Lacks, but 
I don't know if you guys have heard of Helal cells, but they're basically how we were able to start creating cures for cancer was like black woman's cells and they exploited her ovarian cancer. And it's this like mind blowing story of how modern oncology was born. And I'm just like, why nobody, nobody talks about that. Nobody brings that up. Nobody it's, it's, oh, this doctor came up with this cure, this doctor. It's like, no, we all owe our lives to this woman who was exploited. Oh, it's just insane. Like, Are you talking about the John Hopkins story? Is this, was that John Hopkins hospital? I think so. Out here in Baltimore? Yeah. 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 Cause there's a, a lawsuit about it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> after all these years, yeah, there's an actual, because they put factual evidence out that they never disclosed this information to this black lady. Yeah, and she so had no idea. And her family had no, had no idea. No it was a, like a journalist that came through and was like, hey, by the way, like you're all, you are the basis of yeah, yeah. Uh, cancer yeah. research. And yeah, it's. But think about that time. You couldn't announce that. No. Just think about the mind frame at that time. You wouldn't dare go out there and say, this African American woman is the source of this cure here or, yeah. or significant progress. They wouldn't dare do it. So it was just, let's sweep it, you know, under the rug. No one's going to care anyway, but it's about digging that stuff up now. You know, I don't care what the race is. It's a part of our history, you know, and like I said, treated almost like buried treasure. We have to dig up this stuff or you're not going to know about it. Well, and I love, I love that you, you bring up um, just empowering yourself with that knowledge, because I think a lot of times, Especially, I think I felt this way in my youth just because you're ignorant and 18 and you think everyone needs to hand things to you. But I remember thinking like, well, it's not my fault. I don't know. And it's like the more it's like, oh, there's so much to unpack with that thought. But it's so empowering to, like you said, go out there, do your own research, learn about these things, um, learn from other people and what the, the stories they're telling, because it is your fault. You don't know. You just yeah, don't. It is. <laughs> it is your fault. And. You know, yeah, we can probably put some blame on the school system now, you know what I mean? But also you have to put blame on yourself. You know, even I, I'm a black man and I didn't know my history as well as I should have. I got boxed in with everybody else. And this is kind of where I explain it is you almost, they almost shaped your mind as a kid to look at history one way in tunnel vision, that the white man did everything that you have, and that's just what it is. We will celebrate some of the accomplishments of black people, maybe some indigenous people, Latino people, but what you need to know, they were not the main people that made America run. And honestly, that's how I always looked at it. You know, yeah. I never really looked at a black man or a black woman and said, hey, you were responsible for this and that when they were a lot of times. And on me, it's I'm at fault because I never looked deeper. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's where we're all at fault. Anybody, I don't care who you are. You're at fault for not digging deeper because that's a life lesson anyway. You know what yeah. I mean? You should always be researching things. No matter what people are telling you, you should always want to dig deeper and go, okay, what, what's more to this? What can I learn more with this person, this knowledge this person just gave me? So you always got to put that on yourself as well. I love that. I love that. that yeah. Accepting that responsibility is so yeah. powerful. <laughs> And I, I've always loved that idea that knowledge was kind of the key to freedom, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's great to hear that again. <laughs> yep. So, so about how maybe we could touch on how you came into working with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and, um, 
Like, I have to admit, like, it when it was announced that here's this person who is, you know, has been a hip-hop artist, a rapper for so long, and all of a sudden here's this symphony that's going to be working with them. People were like, what? You know, like, how how is this going to work? I mean, sure. is they going to, like, bring a turntable onto the stage? What's going to happen? You know, so uh, it was quite quite a shock, I think, in the classical world, you know? Yeah, I mean, agree. I, I'm, I'm humble about it, and I'm also, you know, I realize that everybody's not going to take to it right away. And I think the other thing, too, is the misconception about me is, though hip-hop is my base, that's, you know, I write music in so many different genres, and especially mm-hmm. throughout my career, I work with so many different genres, you know, but again, you only, you work with what the press puts out there. Press can make or break you, you know what I right. mean? And so, <laughs> you know, and, and that's the thing, and I think it's a slow process of people are learning that, you know, true to heart, yeah, I love hip-hop, but true to heart, I'm a songwriter, you know, I've written so many different styles, forms of music, won several different songwriting contests, have collaborated with so many different people from around the world. And so I've easily been able to just kind of slither my way in and out of different genres. And also too, because I write so much for TV films and games, I'm a quick-witted songwriter. I can write jingles quickly. I'm the type of songwriter where once I have the concept you or concept you give me, I'm going to have a song written within a day or two, full, complete, growing quality song. And so, you know, with those factors right there, I think people don't always dig enough into, I would say, my resume and things I've done. They look at the surface level and go, oh, he's a hip hop artist and he's a rapper. And it's just, I say to myself a lot of times, oh, I'm so much more than that, you know? Right, right. Uh, so some of the projects I'm working on, you know, even I have my theater background, you know, that's where my Bachelor of Arts is in. I'm working on Stravinsky's The Soldier's Tale and I'm rewriting it and telling it from a black soldier's perspective during the Vietnam War and during the civil rights era. Wow. And, you know, I've always heard too, Stravinsky never really liked the narration for his uh, piece. So, you know, for the BSO to have faith in me to rewrite, you know, this piece, which is pretty much a one man play, you can have other actors, but they've asked me to do it as a one man play. I'm writing everything pretty much from scratch while still trying to pay homage to some of the original texts, you know, but again, telling it from you know, what is a, how is it different with a black soldier if he comes into contact with a devil and the devil, you know, can offer him a lot of the things that he never had? I don't know about you, but that's different from a black man who may have nothing and is coming back from Vietnam War, from war to another war in America. Think about that. Oh, yeah. In Vietnam and war, a black man coming home, you weren't getting relief. You were coming right home to the civil rights era where it was nothing but protesting going on. So it was war, war. Mm-hmm. That was it. And so, you know, if you don't know the piece, think about, you know, when a soldier meets the devil, you know, and they make this trade off and the guy gets everything he wants. But in the end, he really has nothing. You know, he doesn't have his family anymore. You know, he's pretty much a ghost to the world. He's nobody. And I love the moral of the story. You know what I mean? Because money, it's cliche. It doesn't buy you happiness. It doesn't buy you everything. And he really had everything already. Yeah. You know, so to be able to take this two different things, a great moral to the story, but also tell it again from this black soldier's perspective, I'm able to dig into my theater arts background on the performance side, my theater arts background with writing uh, plays, 
And then, of course, my background with music. Also, you know, with the BSO, I'm doing a lot of diversity projects. So I'm doing a Frederick Douglass piece called Freedom's Genuine Dawn. And I'm doing it with James Lee, who I'm doing the Destin Words piece with. And again, writing original pieces, not always going back and saying, hey, let's recreate this, reimagine this, but writing new pieces that are about present time, but also paying odes to who, again, Frederick Douglass, who is a part of black history, who people know, but don't truly know his importance. Right. And so the piece that we're writing will more shine the light on Frederick Douglass importance in American society. So we're really sparking the mind to go, okay, I knew the name, but I didn't really know the guy behind it. Mm-hmm. And we're just giving it to you in a rhythmic format, orchestral, you know, movements, but then I'm giving it to you on a poetical format. And it's going to be a mix of new written material for myself, but then a mix of me pulling from um, Frederick Douglass's speech as well. Um, some of his speeches as well. So you're going to get a good mix of Douglas's true words along with present day additions for myself. And then of course, James is providing the composition musically with it. So it's going to be a very powerful, strong piece that we're going to be debuting. I believe black history month of 2022, I believe. So we're again, between Destin words, this piece, we're doing Beethoven um, as well. I, re- I totally rewrote Ode to Joy, which a lot of us were singing since we were in elementary school, middle school. So you can't mess that up. Right. But, <laughs> I, I wrote it in a fashion to where one, you know, it's going to be a 30 person choir singing it, but brought it up to the day. I talked about gender equality, racial equality, um, not judging people, being unique, being comfortable in your own skin. To me, those are all the principles of joy in this present time. And I love the original, but we got to talk more about now to where people hear they go, that's what I'm going through right now. That's what I love right now. That's what I relate to right now. And then I also added a couple poetical, um, I would say, stanzas to Beethoven as well. We're going to add a little, we're going to have a jazz uh, session uh, portion that we're adding to Beethoven 9 also. I know it sounded like it's totally being revamped, but these additions are, I would say, slight additions where we're still paying homage to the original because you got the diehard classical fans, the old school subscribers oh, yeah. that are, oh, messed that up and change that. You know, they don't, they're strict. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So we're making sure we keep that. But still, again, what has to be understand with classical music is it's a lot of old white subscribers. Yeah. But they're not the ones that's going to carry to the next generation because, unfortunately, you know, they're going to start dying off little by little, which is happening now, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. and even worse with COVID hitting. So who's going to carry classical to the next generation is you got to have the youth and you got to spark their mind to want to learn sheet music, learn the viola, learn violin, you know what I mean? Learn percussion early on and see its value. But. If you're not going to put faces up there that are recognizable or familiar, a black kid is not going to keep looking at stage with a bunch of white people and go, yeah, I want to play with the orchestra. I see nobody up here that looks like me. But I can identify with that. No, yeah, I can identify with that. No, no. I don't see the beauty in this music. But if you have more people that are familiar and you're representing so many more communities, you'll see the community engagement even pick up. And people will gain 
that love for classical music and realize, you know, I had to come to the realization of, man, this is such a beautiful form of music. Mm -hmm. I mean, classical, you can really just close your eyes and you can go to wherever world you want to go to a lot of times with classical. It's just so beautiful. It's music that can speak to you without words. And that's why most of it doesn't need words and doesn't have words. Mm -hmm. It's it's a form of music where when you're arranging and you're composing it, it is to speak to the listener through the musical composition. And that's always what I believed of classical. So when I am writing and adding text to stuff, I'm not sitting there with my mind frame of I'm writing a hip hop song or a pop song and I got to fill all this space. It's you got to let the music breathe at times. And when your text is coming in, it's really got to signal a change, you know, in the measure, the movement, whatever. It's got to signal something important or why most people are going to go, why are you even talking during this beautiful piece? So I have to keep that in mind. You know, especially when I'm writing these pieces is, you know, that's why I said I broke it into stages to where past, present, future. These are all things that when you leave, you can have conversations about it. You can question things you don't know. You learn something you may have not known. But also you can really celebrate why Juneteenth is important. Mm -hmm. And I even saw today the Senate passed that they're they're going to make Juneteenth an official holiday. Yeah, so federal holiday. So what better time? Yeah, federal holiday. So what better yeah. time to, to debut <laughs> Destined words, you know what I mean? <laughs> On Juneteenth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's wow. so cool. That's so, so <laughs> yeah, so cool and so inspirational and just like I don't know. Um it's it's amazing to me sometimes how we talk to people on here and like I'm always very excited for them, you know, and then sometimes there's like things that are said that are just like straight to the heart. And it's just like, oh, oh my God. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of takes, takes my, takes any kind of word away and uh, any kind of brain usage out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, bro. <folks. laughs> I'm talking about, man. Yeah. I love that idea of bringing like you said, bringing it to communities and bring it because there's nothing worse, in my opinion. This is me just being me, but like, and I'm gonna rag on the Billings Symphony Orchestra because that's where I live is Billings, Montana. But it's like, what are they doing again? Oh, they're playing Beethoven's Ninth. They're playing this, like another dead white dude's music. Like that's yeah, what I know yeah. about it sometimes. Is I'm like, yeah. no, and they're like, oh yeah, like I volunteer and sing in the choir, and there's like. There's just sometimes where I'm like, I don't want to do this one. I've heard this a thousand times. Everyone's heard it a thousand times. And I mean, we could go on the whole like issue of programming, but I love that idea of freshening it up, of bringing it to the modern time of like giving this historical context of this piece, this idea of how it can relate to your life right now, how you can still feel this music in modern times, even though it's 200 years old. Like that's yeah. really amazing. I feel like I wish more <laughs> symphony orchestras were doing projects like this because it's so important, like you said, to pass that on to the next generation. I mean, there's so many kids that grow up not understanding the value of classical music because it's never been presented to them in a way that is relatable, enjoyable. I think a lot of kids hear it and they're like, ah, it's just boring. There's no words, yeah. no like, and it's hard to sit still, which. <laughs> In the age of YouTube and next, 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 it is hard mm -hmm. still, but there's great enjoyment in that. So I, I just love that idea of tweaking it, bringing it forward, paying respect to where it's been and just you shining a new light on it 
in today's time. So that's really cool. I can't wait to hear this. Oh, I know. I can't either. When you spark the mind, you got them. You know, you just need one moment, uh, classical wise, where, you know, a kid hears it and go, okay, I get it. I understand the beauty in this. And you got them, you know, and that's the hope too, doing this piece on Saturday where, you know, some kid of color might be at home and just goes, happens to run across, you know, the, the station because it's going to be broadcast out here in our on Maryland Public Television, which it airs in the whole state of Maryland, whole state of Virginia, and whole in DC as well, in little parts of Delaware. So they have actually a lot of good programming on it. But um, just hoping that you know a kid sees it and sees Destin words and goes into it. I don't care anything about this, but this happens to run across and it goes, well, let me get this a second here. Okay. I'm hearing orchestra music, but all right, this guy's spitting some poetry and he's talking about some real facts here. I can relate to this to where he gives it a chance and goes, this was actually a real dope piece of music right here. Not just what he was talking about, but the music created the imagery in my mind about what he was going on, you know, and that's what's great about this piece as well, because the composer, James, he was honest. You know, this was only the second piece he had ever composed and arranged where it had text. And I can write very challenging. I'm a syllable smasher. And, you know, I come from very complex delivery at times with, you know, my wordplay. And I don't I'm not light on anybody. I don't care who you are. When we're creating music, I tell them classical, jazz, whatever. I go in. You know what I mean? So. You have to know how to arrange with that. And, you know, he was he was on. He said it was tough for me at points and times. But once he got the hang of my rhythmic pattern and what I was trying to accomplish story wise, this beautiful product came out. So I'm just hoping Saturday, you know, somebody just might see it, you know, of color and go, man, I'm going to go see where I can pick up, you know, an instrument tomorrow and start learning it from yeah. hearing this piece or I want to be a composer or you know any of those things so we just you just got to get that one spark to happen so hopefully it does yeah that's oh, I love that awesome. yeah uh so uh I uh, we sorry this is a side uh we currently have a big storm coming through uh Houston so I'm gonna do my best to stay on as long as possible <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think like what you said is great. Maybe we should just make that like the ending and we could do like a little fair. Holy crap. That lightning. Oh, I, I saw it in your glasses. Man. <laughs> then I heard it. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. yeah. Good old Texas storms, man. Oh, so, I, that. I was born in Houston. I'm like, or I, you know, I love the storms, but we just don't quite get them like that in Montana. And sometimes I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. I love hearing the thunder for seconds, like 30 yeah. seconds or whatnot. But the lightning is like scary. Then the but, whole house rattles. Yeah. And like, I don't know how much I love this. Right. <laughs> that joy so, hit, man. I literally right, saw right. it flash across your glasses. Yeah, this is like on the it's at the other side, the other neighborhood from us. So that was crazy. Um, so, but I want to thank you so much for being on our show today, um, and for just, I mean, dropping volumes of knowledge and and beautiful uh, testaments, and just thank you so much for being here. It's been an honor. 
Thank you so much, Will. Thank you, Hillary. Appreciate the questions and appreciate just the real chill convo. You know, to me, those are always the best interviews where you just feel like you're hanging out, you know, whether it's strangers or friends, just feel like you're hanging out, getting to know one another, talking about any and everything. And that's what right. I felt like we did. We talked about any and everything, though a lot of the stuff we talked about very important. So thank you, too, so much. Oh, thanks so much again. Like I said, it's been such an honor to meet you and listen to you and get to chat and chill with you. And your ideas are going to change the world. I just know it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Doing my best. <laughs>